We were out of doors, sitting as it happened on a bench in a graveyard that was anything but morose. A wide bordered path ran from a gateway to another at the opposite entrance, allowing for a shortcut for pedestrians and cyclists, so that it was as much a haunt of the living as of the dead. The graves were neatly tended, the grass bank on the far side newly mowed, and there was the added gaiety of springtime in London, borders of simmering yellow tulips, front gardens and back gardens surpassing each other in bounteous displays, the wisteria, a feast in itself, masses of it falling in fat folds, the blue so intense it lent a blueness to the eyes themselves. Adrian had said that Rafferty would love a few minutes with me if it was possible, and hinted that he had super-duper news. Rafferty could not contain his joy. He was going home for good. No more bills, no more hassle. Then he took the letter from his leather wallet that was worn and crinkled, but hesitated before handing it to me, since he needed to explain the circumstances. A benefactor who had begun life digging, but who had bettered himself and accrued great riches, had contacted the centre, asking for someone of good character to come home to Ireland and take care of an elderly relative. Roisin at the centre, being the stalwart she was, had suggested Rafferty, and after a ream of letters, his credentials, etc., passed on, he was accepted. Moreover, she had given him a new tweed suit and pullover, since a fresh consignment had come from the Samaritan in Dublin. The house, the dream house or bungalow to where he was going, would be shared with the elderly man. But a woman was coming in every day to do the dinner and keep an eye on the elderly man's needs since he suffered from diabetes, something which he contracted later in life. Rafferty must have read the benefactor's letter dozens of times, as it had been folded again and again. Forty years previous, when he left Ireland, his mother, his lovely mother, had packed his things in a brown suitcase, and he had taken his belongings out, except for three sacred things, a missal, a crucifix which she had blessed, and striped pyjamas which he never wore but had kept them in case he ever had to go to hospital. He was lucky to have escaped that, because many of his mates were struck down with chronic illnesses, asthma, lung diseases, skin diseases, injuries of every kind. He said he would humour the elderly relative, whom he guessed would sleep half of the day or at least doze. He would play cards with him, or maybe do the crosswords, with the vigour he contemplated picking up a shovel again and getting a bit of garden going, cabbage, sprouts, shallots, lettuce, and see what potatoes were native to that particular soil. Oh, I'll go to the pub, he said. Stands to reason, but I'll pace myself. No going back to Skid Row for Rafferty. The bungalow was not in his own part of the country, but still it was home. And he asked out loud if it was likely that he would once again hear the cry of the corncrake, that distinctive call which had never faded from his memory. Birds, birds, 
in their truant giddiness were swooping and scudding about the gravestones, but a few pugnacious ones had converged on a plastic lunchbox that had the remains of a salad and were conducting bitter warfare by brandishing torn shreds of limp lettuce. Their beaks were a bright, hard orange. When I am sitting on a rocking chair over there on the borders of Leitrim and Roscommon, Rafferty continued, and they ask me how it was in the building work, I'll tell them it was great. I'll tell them it was great altogether. I'll tell them about Paddy Pancake. Shrove Tuesday, we were all on sight, itching to get off early, because we'd sworn to give up drink for Lent. Paddy Pancake sprung a surprise on us, never touched a drink himself, and wore his total abstinence badge for all to see. He was night chef somewhere in Ealing. And so from a black oilskin bag, he took out flour, eggs, milk, castor sugar, salt, and a small bottle of dangerous-looking blue liqueur. He'd even brought the basin to make the batter. Then, looking around, he picked up a big shovel, washed it down a couple of times with a hose, and presto, he had his frying pan. Two lads were told to get the fire going. Plenty of wood from timbers and old doors scattered on a nearby site, and Paddy tossed the pancakes on the shovel like a master. He had an assistant to sprinkle the castor sugar and a few drops of the liqueur, and lads grabbed and gobbled like wolves. To crown it all, a shy Galway boy stood up on a skip and belted out a rebel song. Ruddy McCauley goes to die on the bridge of tomb today. The words of that boy and his voice so beautiful, so heartfelt, as Rafferty said. Tears welled up in his eyes as he recalled that revel. A winter evening, the glow of the fire, the leaping flames red-blue, dancing in that London wasteland, as if in some Roman amphitheatre. As he tucked the letter back in his wallet, a photo of himself fell out. It was a snap, really, taken on some river bank where he and his friends had obviously been swimming. The sheer life in his expression was breathtaking. His hair was tousled, his eyes as youthful and moist as any young man's eyes could be. Not a single feature in that photograph resembled the man that was sitting beside me. Well, that's youth for you, he said, suddenly bashful. And as I had guessed, that was to be our fleeting farewell.